Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 30, Emperor. Welcome back, everyone. And as you can probably tell from the title of this episode, today we are finally crowning an emperor. Now, I mentioned at the closing of the last episode that I wanted to discuss both the Napoleonic Code and Napoleon's decision to make himself emperor this week. But I decided that instead, we'll focus on Napoleon's imperial rise today and then I will cover an entire supplemental episode on the Napoleonic Code, its impact, and then its lasting legacy next week. I believe both deserve the proper attention, and thus, they will receive their own proper episodes. But before we begin today, I did want to mention that I've been waiting to make this specific episode for quite a while now, basically since the start of the podcast. You see, as I mentioned all the way back in our first episode, Doing this first series on Napoleon was personal for me, as he was the first historical individual whose biography I did a report on back in elementary school. Beyond that, though, I just remember being so enamored with Napoleon's coronation paintings and with him sitting atop his imperial throne, like the one that is the cover photo for this podcast. And so for us to finally be at this episode where we can crown an emperor, well, I am very excited, and I am hoping that this is our best episode yet, to say the least. So, with all of that preamble out of the way, let's pick up from where we left off in our last episode, with the Duke Dongyin murdered after a show trial, and the whole of Europe ready to take up arms against Napoleonic France. After the Duke's death, Napoleon returned to Paris, where he acknowledged the unpopularity of his decisions regarding the entire affair though he offered up no apologies, even referencing previous historical precedents as reasoning for his harsh response. Nevertheless, those around him, even in his inner circle, approached him at a distance, likely wary that any one of them could be next, but they were also cognizant of the fact that his harsh response had put up a now peaceful France back on the precipice of conflict once again. And indeed, Napoleon, also recognizing this, became more reserved in his dealings with these men displaying a more somber attitude as if a child understanding that he had erred and was ashamed not of his actions, but of its consequences. Not helping the situation was that Pichigrew, as we mentioned last week, died only two weeks later in his cell. Now, many believe that Napoleon had ordered Pichigrew's murder, but there is little evidence to support the claim, and some have even suggested that Napoleon wanted a public trial for the general as a way to somewhat absolve him of the blame of the death of the Duke Dongyin. Nevertheless, this did not happen, and only further enraged his opponents. And Captain Wright, who had ferried all those men to the French shores, if we remember from last week, was captured a month later and was sent to prison, where he was also to die under mysterious circumstances a year and a half later. Now, Napoleon was also blamed for his murder, but in exile years later in Elba, Napoleon wrote that he had never even heard of the man. So whoever you believe, all the main conspirators in the Cotodol affair were now either captured, exiled, or dead. 
But many historians point out that the assassination attempts on Napoleon's life, especially in the Cadillac affair, were the main catalyst for turning a seemingly devout Republican into an iron-fisted despot. Though this is a gross oversimplification. But having said that, after the Duc d'Anjou's death, Napoleon called the Concile d'État together and stated bluntly, quote, they seek to destroy the revolution by attacking my person. I will defend it, for I am the revolution. Napoleon was nothing else, if not humble, am I right? Having said this, though, Napoleon, as well as the state, believed that in order to avoid another assassination attempt, Napoleon needed to, quote, finish the job and cement himself into a concrete apparatus that would ensure his rule, his continuation of power should he die, and then his legacy. In other words, he needed to codify his complete consolidation of power that he had achieved in the coup of 18 Brumaire nearly five years earlier. And I think we all know how he was going to do this. And while it might sound crazy, it does make sense, especially in the context of post-revolutionary France. I mean, for the first time in over a generation, France did actually have a semblance of stability running the government. And having a clear and defined path to succession not only would lay out a plan should an assassin succeed, but hopefully prevent them from even attempting the assassination altogether. Because it's not exactly beneficial to assassinate someone if you know that there's already someone chosen to succeed the man in power anyway, right? And with this in mind, Napoleon called the Concile together on March 28, 1804, and told them that the matter of his ascension into some sort of, well, permanent position was of the utmost importance. But what to call this position? Some, ironically, wanted him to take the crown and proclaim himself king, resolving the issue of succession while also beginning a Napoleonic dynasty. So, I guess in reality, this is a true revolution, right? From a king to, well, another king. In reality, though, Napoleon was far too savvy to accept the title of king knowing how that would look from a public relations standpoint, both at home and abroad. True, many in France would have supported the notion, but, I mean, we did just behead our previous king 10 years ago, remember? So then, what to call him? At this meeting, the title of king was floated around, but so too were consul, prince, and lastly, emperor. The first two were deemed too modest, if insufficient, while emperor was thought as too grandiose, too ambitious for the time. Napoleon even joked that the men debating over this were not simply having a conversation, but that they were all making history. But in the end, as I'm sure we're all well aware, the only title that they felt appropriate for both Napoleon and for France was nothing less than emperor. As British historian Andrew Roberts so eloquently notes, Many of the Republican generals who likely would have given their lives to prevent such an ascension from happening were either dead, exiled, or about to be put on trial. Pichigrou. Others, such as Bernadotte and Jourdan, were about to be placated by being made marshals of the empire and given royal titles all their own, and thus they were of no immediate threat, although we'll get to the Bernadotte's treason later in the podcast. And as I mentioned before, much of France was open to a return to a system of monarchy, if not constitutionally. And again, how could you blame them? You see this stabilizing economy, Jacques? Well, that's brought to you by none other than Emperor Napoleon. This church I can attend again? 
Yes, thanks again to our great emperor. Oh, our army is in its best shape it's been in in generations? Why, that too was brought to us by our great emperor. This guy isn't half bad. And Napoleon knew that his fellow Frenchmen would be open to the idea, so much so that he put it to a vote in yet another plebiscite. This time, not asking if they were okay with Napoleon being made consul for life, but rather if they were okay with him being made emperor of the French. But that vote would not come until November of 1804, and let's be honest, its results were all but assured. Turning out a plebiscite of over 3 million people, it came back with close to 99% in favor of Napoleon remaining emperor of the French, as well as amending the French constitutionally and legally established the first French empire. But as I said, this vote was merely procedural. Napoleon was declared emperor on May 18, 1804 in a short ceremony at saint Cloud, in which he named brothers Joseph as Grand Elector and Louis to the office of Constable of France. Styled more so as an homage to the Roman Empire rather than a resurrection of the absolutist European monarchies of the previous 800 or so years, Napoleon kept the Senate and Concile d'État as working bodies of government to show a still outwardly Republican France. Now, those of us history buffs out there will know that this was almost exactly the same maneuver that Augustus used when he declared himself princeps over 1800 years earlier. Officially styled as Napoleon, through the grace of God and of the Constitution of the Republic, Emperor of the French, Napoleon also announced that Joseph would be his immediate heir should he fail to produce one, while Lucien would be second in line to the throne. His other younger brother, Jerome, was cut out of the will entirely due to his marriage to an American heiress from Baltimore, which infuriated Napoleon as he wanted to marry his youngest brother off to other European royals to shore up his dynastic insertion into the established European royal hierarchy. Did we all get that? Great. And indeed, many of his sisters were now elated that he would become emperor simply to enjoy the spoils of their newly found royalty. And Napoleon himself even quipped after his imperial ascension that, quote, to listen to my sisters, you'd think that I mismanaged the inheritance of our father, the late king. Which brings me to another reason why Napoleon was so quick to ascend to the imperial throne, or rather create it. Napoleon felt that, as ruler of France, he needed to have equal footing with the rest of the European ruling class. He wrote of how the British and the Austrians looked at the Robespierres and Bajas of the world and laughed at their futile attempts to be considered amongst their equals. But Napoleon, the conquering general who starts and ends wars and then becomes emperor of one of the most powerful countries in history? Well, that's a different beast entirely. And Napoleon now felt that he was amongst the most powerful men in Europe. And while he certainly was in reality, the rest of the European monarchs were not exactly keen on seeing him as such, especially not the British. Eight days before Napoleon became emperor, William Pitt the Younger became prime minister of Great Britain for the second time. Forever the thorn in Napoleon's side that he just couldn't shake, Pitt began his premiership by looking to the rest of Europe to form a third coalition against Napoleon in France. Britain now had plenty of money to throw around at some of her power constituent partners, specifically Austria and Russia, and she was hoping that by sending them cash, they would be up for sending men to war. Napoleon, daring to call himself emperor over a week later, 
began a chain of diplomatic events that would eventually lead to the start of the War of the Third Coalition in exactly 11 months. Fortunately for Napoleon, though, the day after he declared himself Emperor of the French, he gathered his greatest generals and proclaimed them marshals of the empire. So when the fighting would break out over a year later, he would have at his side some of the greatest military leaders, not just in French, but in overall military history. Now, as I've mentioned countless times, I am going to do a supplemental episode on each individual marshal, and that series will begin next week with shorter snippet episodes, which will run concurrently with this current series. But I do want to mention them here so that we can have a reference point, because make no mistake, they will all make numerous appearances over the next 11 years. In total, there would be 26 marshals of the Empire, though there were never more than 20 at any given moment. The first promotion, which we just mentioned, created 18 marshals, 14 of which were active generals in the army, while four were former senior generals who held significant commands during their careers and were currently senators of the Republic. The first promotion included some of Napoleon's finest commanders, with most of them having served during the Revolutionary Wars and seven of them serving directly under Napoleon's campaigns. We've mentioned quite a few of these men already, but the first 18 marshals were as follows. Louis-Alexandre Berthier, Joachim Murat, Bon Adrien Genot de Moncy, Jean-Baptiste Jordan, André Massena, Pierre Agaro, Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, Guillaume Brun, Jean de Diosoult, Jean Lain, Edouard Mortier, Michel Ney, Louis-Nicolas Davou, Jean-Baptiste Bessaré, François-Christophe de Kellerman, Honorary, François-Joseph de Lefebvre, Honorary, Catherine-Dominique de Perignon, and Jean-Mathieu-Philibert Sorourier. Now, there would be an additional six promotions, and they would also include some of Napoleon's more famous and able commanders, such as the Polish Poniatowski, Suchet, and MacDonald, but they also included some of the more infamous, such as Emmanuel de Grouchy, who was widely blamed for the French loss at the Battle of Waterloo. Now, the rank of Marshal of the Empire was the highest and most prestigious title a general could achieve under the Napoleonic Empire, similar, though not quite equivalent, to the five-star general in today's militaries. And indeed, I probably misspoke because Marshal wasn't really a rank, but rather a title, which came with prestige, privilege, and seniority. But there were other generals in Napoleon's army who would become fine military commanders in their own right without attaining the title of marshal. Even still, some of the men who received the title thought it a bit unnecessary. Massena, who always had a contentious relationship with the younger Napoleon, famously scoffed after being informed of his promotion to the title. Quote, there are 14 of us, he would say. And indeed, Massena was fortunate to have received a promotion at all, considering he voted against having Napoleon be consul for life as well as emperor. But Napoleon knew how valuable the man was in the field and needed a way to placate him amongst others. Many of the marshals would go on to become dukes and kings and have titles fit for the highest rungs of society at any point in history, and they would all receive their famous marshal's baton upon being promoted to the position. Now the baton velvet and silver and studded with a gold eagle, 
was so coveted that it was widely reported that almost every soldier carried a makeshift baton in their knapsacks as a reminder that they too could one day become a marshal. And indeed, of the original 14 marshals, 10 of them had risen from the ranks and were sons of artisans, blacksmiths, brewers, and even peasants. Many would become some of the richest men in Europe, mirroring the rise of the emperor who now commanded them. Now, simultaneously to creating the martial aid, Napoleon also converted units of the Consular Guard into the Imperial Guard. Napoleon's answer to the Roman Praetorian Guard made up of the elite of the elite in the soon-to-be-formed Grand Armée. However, much like the Praetorian Guard before it, they received much resentment from other ranks due to their perceived favoritism by Napoleon, which, you know, is kind of fair. Anyway, Napoleon split the marshals into, broadly speaking, two camps. Seven would command the Army of the Rhine, and the other seven, the Army of Italy. Napoleon did this to ensure an even power distribution, but he also wanted to ensure that there wouldn't be any single commander who would become too powerful at any given time. I mean, what would Napoleon do if he were faced with, well, another Napoleon? But that wouldn't come to pass. And after Napoleon got his senior command in order and took care of the Cadudol affair's final perpetrators, Cadudol himself was executed that June, remember, Napoleon sat down with the former Consul d'État, now styled the Imperial Council, to decide on when the newly proclaimed emperor would be crowned as such. Numerous locations of historical significance were thrown around, Rheims, where historical coronations had taken place, the Champ du Mar for its revolutionary connections, and Aïe la Chapelle for its connection to Charlemagne. But ultimately, Notre Dame was decided as a location. And they also settled on December 2nd as the date as a compromise with the Pope who would officiate the ceremony. And Napoleon had wanted November 9th, as it was the fifth anniversary of the Brumaire coup, and the Pope had wanted Christmas Day, as Charlemagne had been crowned on Christmas. So thus, December 2nd was seen as a logical midpoint. Now, the following six months were used to plan for the extravagant event that would become a hallmark in French history. And one of the initial decisions that had to be made was deciding upon the heraldic insignia to be used by the emperor. Many animals were thrown around, including cockerels, roosters, elephants, lions, bees, and eagles. Now, Napoleon scoffed at the idea of using a cockerel, stating to the council that it was a feeble creature, and the idea of the eagle was also scrapped, as it was a symbol in numerous countries at that point in history, including two of France's main rivals in Prussia and Austria. Napoleon initially decided on the lion, the idea being that the lion defeats leopards, but after the meeting ended, he reneged and ultimately decided on using the eagle with its wings spread out as an imperial standard. What was his reasoning? He wanted to hearken back to both Charlemagne and, of course, ancient Rome. Napoleon would also use the bee for personal and familial insignia. The bee symbolized both power and mercy because the bee stings but also produces honey. Thousands of small golden bees were mass-produced prior to the coronation ceremonies, and it has since been synonymous with the House of Bonaparte. But beyond the philosophical symbolism, Napoleon also wanted to use it as a political connection. He wanted to connect with the Merovingian dynasty, which also used the bee as a royal symbol, and which founded the idea of French sovereignty. 
now styling himself with the imperial title and with his regalia being produced in the background. Napoleon also used the opportunity to create honors and titles for the citizens of his newly founded empire. On July 14, 1804, he announced the creation of the new French order, the Légion d'Honneur, to reward meritorious service to French citizens, regardless of social status or rank. Still retained to this day, the Légion d'Honneur is the highest award bestowed upon an individual by the French government for both civilian and military service. Many in France scoffed at the award once it was announced, including Moreau, who believed it betrayed the French Revolution's core principles of egalitarianism, but Napoleon's inclusion of civilians into their ranks was a deliberate way of addressing this concern. He wanted normal French citizens to feel that if they were to act the same way that their soldiers did, they too could be awarded for their service to France. And indeed, when the awards were being discussed two years earlier, Napoleon addressed the concerns brought up by the committee by stating, quote, You tell me that class distinctions are babbles used by monarchs, but I defy you to show me a republic, ancient or modern, in which distinctions have not existed. You call these medals and ribbons babbles. Well, it is with such babbles that men are led. I would not say this in public, but in an assembly of wise statesmen, it should be said. I don't think that the French love liberty and equality. The French are not changed by ten years of revolution. They are what the Gauls were, fierce and fickle. They have one feeling, honor. We must nourish that feeling. The people clamor for distinction. See how the crowd is awed by medals and orders worn by foreign diplomats? We must recreate these distinctions. There has been too much tearing down. We must rebuild. A government exists, yes, and power, but the nation itself, what is it? Scattered grains of sand. Now, much of this quote has often been taken out of context when speaking about Napoleon with respect to his rule of authority, but as we can see, it is a complete validation of the concept of honor and the need for it in being able to have a successful nation. And indeed, many of the men who voted against the proposal for the Legion that day would later go on to receive the award during the empire. Again, what are politicians, if not massive hypocrites, right? Now, while all this was going on, Napoleon was still issuing decrees on various laws and regulations, both in France and in her held territories. He balanced a heavy hand with measured restraint, as can be evidenced by his numerous letters he wrote to officials, condemning their actions one day while apologizing for his apparent rage the next. He had to be cautious in his approach and how he dealt with his subordinates. France had already seen Britain seizing Spanish ships in their silver caches, Spain was an ally of France and son Ildefonso, if you recall, and thus he did not want many of his subjects, especially in the critically strategic vassal state of Piedmont, to begin aiding the British. Well, any more than they likely already had been. He had British officials seized both within France and abroad, as was the case with Sir George Rumbold at his country house in Hamburg in Prussia. Rumbold had been involved in numerous emigre plots, and thus Napoleon used his authority to extradite him back to France, where he was placed in the Temple Prison before being sent back to Britain days later. It was a small tit-for-tat, cat-and-mouse game the two sides were playing with one another before the hostilities truly broke out in 1805, and save for a few skirmishes on the high seas and the obvious effects of economic warfare, 1804 was relatively bloodless when compared to the carnage that was about to ensue come April 1805. 
and that gave Napoleon plenty of time to prepare for the grand event of 1804, his coronation. Now, the preparations for Napoleon's coronation were, relatively speaking, hastily put together. And to be fair, it's incredible to me that the event went off with such grandeur and spectacle, despite the fact that it was, especially for a 19th century coronation, put together at the last possible moment. I mean, we're recording this episode in the summer of 2023, so we just watched the coronation of King Charles III nearly nine months after his ascension to king. Now, Napoleon's coronation was done in a similar time frame from his ascension, but with far fewer communication channels and logistics afforded to a sovereign in the 21st century. Moreover, much of the preparations were lagging behind schedule, such as the coronation regalia, and working out the final details with the Catholic Church. Speaking of the Catholic Church, Pope Pius VII left Rome for Paris on November 2nd, and Napoleon would meet him on the 25th between Namur and Fontainebleau, just outside of Paris. Now, Napoleon had used the opportunity to basically push his own agenda for the coronation, many of the details already agreed upon by both sides prior to Pius' departure from Rome. In Napoleon's own words, he stated, quote, To be a king is to inherit old ideas and genealogy. I don't want to descend from anyone. So now, with the Pope thousands of miles from Rome and unable to you know, just turn around, Napoleon laid out his, well, modifications for the ceremony. Firstly, he persuaded the papal delegation to allow several French elements into the ceremony. After all, Napoleon was about to be crowned Emperor of the French, not Emperor of France, right? Now, some of these details would seem relatively minor to us today, but at the time, they were controversial. He wanted the singing of any creator to be followed by the collective Pentecost for the monarch's entrance, the use of chrism instead of the oil of the catechumens for the anointing of himself and Josephine, to bless the regalia as it was delivered, among other adjustments. Napoleon wanted an event that would incorporate both French and Roman elements into a single unified precedent-setting ceremony. Most important of these was that Napoleon was allowed to stay seated during the ceremony and was not required to kneel when the regalia was delivered, a small nod to the idea that he perceived his power from the people and not from a single man, regardless of his representation of the Catholic Church. And more on that part in a little bit. Napoleon would enter Paris with Pope Pius on November 28th and told his soldiers to treat the pontiff as if he had a massive army behind him. Now, supposedly, this was the ultimate compliment. And Napoleon then agreed to marry Josephine in a religious ceremony, as the Pope had deemed any coronation invalid should both consorts be married outside of the church. Thus, on December 1st, 1804, the night before the coronation, Napoleon married Josephine in a religious ceremony at the Tuileries. Josephine supposedly sent the wedding certificate to her son, Eugène, in the event that Napoleon deemed the marriage never took place. Now, speaking of the imperial consorts, the coronation brought about a flurry of drama between the Bonaparte and Bouhane clans. Brother Joseph protested heavily against Josephine being crowned empress, as it meant that Hortense, Josephine's daughter, remember, and Louis Bonaparte's, Napoleon's brother's, children, would be grandchildren to an emperor, while his own children would be commoners, despite the fact that he was technically next in line to the throne. All of his sisters protested against carrying her gown train, ostensibly refusing to see themselves as below her, and his brother Lucien refused to attend the ceremony at all, deciding instead to stay behind in Rome with their mother, Leticia, who, after his ascension to emperor, 
would be referred to historically as Madame Mère or Madame Mother. And Napoleon, for his part, seemed to scoff at the notion that his siblings would not attend or were making such a big fuss about the ceremony. He remarked famously to a colleague that, quote, there are thousands of people in France who have given greater service to the state than them, yourself among them. Napoleon's stepchildren, however, Eugène and Hortense, well, they received nothing but the highest praise from Napoleon, especially Eugène, who, after being wounded in Egypt, gained the emperor's utmost respect for the rest of his life. This familial bickering notwithstanding, the coronation went on as planned on December 2nd, 1804, and it would have been a spectacle to behold even today. Many of the attendees began arriving at Notre Dame at 6 a.m., seeking cover under awnings as it had snowed and rained that morning. According to Napoleon's valet, Louis Constant Valley, the emperor woke at 8 a.m. to cannon fire and left the Tuileries at 10 a.m. dressed in a white velvet vest with gold embroidery and diamond buttons. Covering the vest was a crimson velvet tunic and a short crimson coat with satin lining, and upon his head was his famous crown of laurel. There were thousands of onlookers along the procession of Notre Dame, many of them having gotten to the spots the night before in order to catch a glimpse of all the pomp and circumstance. The ceremony began promptly at 9 a.m., the church filled with officials and diplomats from all over Europe. The ambassadors of Sweden and Prussia, however, did not attend out of respect for the death of the Duc d'Ognier. The papal procession was the first to leave the Tuileries, and the Pope entered the church first, taking a seat on a throne near the high altar. Soon after, artillery salvos announced the departure of the emperor and empress from the Tuileries. The procession to the church was said to be so long that numerous stops had to be made along the route to negotiate bottlenecks. Murat, as governor of Paris, was at the head of the processions, followed by his staff, four squadrons of carabiners, then cuirassiers, horse chasseurs of the Imperial Guard, and then a squadron of Mamluks. Finally came the herald-at-arms, carrying standards with eagles and staves adorned with bees. Napoleon and Josephine's carriage was the last of the procession, drawn by eight white horses. As they reached the church, Napoleon was vested in a long white satin tunic embroidered in gold thread which stretched all the way down to his ankles. Josephine, reportedly so done up with makeup that she was made to look in her mid-twenties, also wore a white, imperial-style dress embroidered in gold thread, a look she would bring into vogue during the next ten years on the throne. Napoleon's mantle was ermine-lined in velvet, and the entire outfit weighed over 80 pounds, meaning that he needed Joseph, Louis, Lebrun, and Cambacérès to help him lift it as he walked down the aisle. At 11.45 a.m., they were greeted by Cardinal de Belloy, the Archbishop of Paris, who promptly sprinkled them with holy water. There were two orchestras, four choruses, numerous military bands playing hymns, and nearly 400 musicians all told. Awaiting the emperor and empress as they walked towards the altar were their crowns. For Josephine, a small crown surmounted by a cross, while Napoleon's crown, for the occasion known as the crown of Charlemagne, was recreated to look medieval. It is now known as the crown of Napoleon, and it still survives to this day in the Louvre. The official ceremony began with the singing of the hymn Veni Creator Spiritus, and then the collection of the Feast of Pentecost. Throughout the opening of the ceremony, both Napoleon and Josephine remained seated, kneeling only when directed to. They were then blessed with the chrism on their heads and both of their hands, as requested, 
And then the mass began. After the epistle, the pieces of imperial regalia were officially blessed by the Pope, and then they were delivered to Napoleon and Josephine. And it was here where the most famous, or perhaps infamous, part of the coronation took place, Napoleon crowning himself as emperor. Now, Napoleon's coronation also adapted its own procedure when the crowning took place, combining a litany of French and Roman traditions that had no precedent in Western-style coronations of the past. While the Pope recited the procedure, Napoleon lifted the crown over his head, placed it down, and then promptly crowned Josephine, who was said to be in tears as her hands were joined in prayer. The Pope then blessed them both, embraced Napoleon, and then told him, Vivat Imperator in Aeternum. May the Emperor live forever. Now, before we continue, there are a few things I want to clear up. It is often said that Napoleon snatched the crown from the Pope and then crowned himself by placing the crown atop his head. In reality, both men had agreed that Napoleon would crown himself and then Josephine, and Napoleon did not, in fact, place the crown on his head as he was wearing the laurel wreath. Napoleon wanted it to be made clear that he was being made emperor on his own merit, not through the power of the Catholic Church or by divine right. He also wanted the crowning to symbolize that he gained his power through the people, not by his status or privilege alone. And he affirmed this in his coronation oath, taken right after the mass ceremony concluded. I swear to maintain the integrity of the territory of the Republic, to respect and enforce respect for the concordat and freedom of religion, equality of rights, political and civil liberty, the irrevocability of the sale of natural lands not to raise any tax except in virtue of the law, to maintain the institution of Légion d'honneur, and to govern in the sole interest, happiness, and glory of the French people. And after the oath was administered, the herald of arms proclaimed loudly, the thrice glorious and thrice august Emperor Napoleon is crowned and enthroned. Long live the Emperor. And as Napoleon and Josephine exited the cathedral, the crowd shouted, quote, Domine salvum fac imperatorum nostrum Napoleonum. God save our Emperor Napoleon. The coronation of Napoleon and Josephine culminated what turned out to be a momentous 1804 for both Napoleon and for France. The event went well over budget. Some estimated the cost at over 8 million francs. The people, they didn't care. They were feted with fireworks, parades, and unlimited wine for the entire night as Paris celebrated the crowning of a new emperor and a new age in French history. Paintings were commissioned, some of the most famous by Jacques-Louis David, including the iconic consecration of the emperor Napoleon I and coronation of the empress Josephine in the Cathedral of Notre-Dame de Paris on December 2nd, 1804. <laughs> what a mouthful. And my personal favorite, and the head image of the podcast, Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres, Napoleon I on his imperial throne. Commemorative medals were struck and administered to the attendees, and coinage was minted to commemorate the event. It truly symbolized a new day for the French, as well as for Napoleon. Dead, to an extent, was the soldier, replaced now by the emperor. As you would expect, 
the rest of Europe scoffed at the entire ceremony, with the exiled Bourbons making fun of the ceremony and its apparent lack of tradition, apparently ignorant of the fact that that was the point. The Austrians had refused Napoleon's request to use the real crown of Charlemagne, and with the original crown of the Bourbons destroyed during the French Revolution, Napoleon was forced to commission his own. But in his mind, that was perfectly okay. Because starting next episode, Emperor Napoleon is going to embark on one of the most brilliant military campaigns in the history of warfare. Because as 1804 made way to 1805, war would indeed be on the horizon, and Napoleon, seeing himself now as the most powerful man in Europe, would begin his quest to prove it.